beautiful. Well, that's a great passage. And as Finn said, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But I confess that when I saw I was down to preach on this passage, um, I rather hoped I'd get COVID. <laughs> and uh, uh, no, I didn't. That's an awful thing to say. But I thought, what? Gosh, no, I don't really want to talk on that, Lord. But it is the inspired word of God, and it is given for our encouragement and instruction and conformity to Jesus. So we're going to tuck in and uh, hopefully hear from the Lord from this word tonight. But do you mind if we just pray again? So, Lord, we ask for your help. We thank you that you are a speaking God and that you speak through creation and you speak through our consciences and you speak, Lord, through culture. You speak through the canon of your scripture. You speak preeminently through your son. You speak by your spirit. And we pray now you will speak to us, Lord. And we want to understand and welcome the weight of your words, Lord. And we want to apply them to our lives. Lord, we don't want to be superficial followers of you. We want to go all after you, Lord. And so we pray, speak to us and make us more like you because of tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to that letter, uh, the letter to the church of Thyatira, Revelation 2, starting at verse 18. And uh, we've been following a series looking at these seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, the presupposition to them all is that the Lord wants to speak to his church. And he doesn't just leave her to her own devices, but he wants to be intimately involved with her, speaking to her, encouraging her, and shaping her ultimately that he might bless her. And that's what it's all about. So even when we read a passage like the one we've got this evening, and we think, ooh, that's a bit heavy and a bit sharp and ouch, ultimately it's about the Lord wanting uh, to prepare us in such a way that he might pour his blessing into us. There was a burglar who broke into a house that he thought was empty, and uh, tiptoeing through it, in the pitch black, he suddenly froze when he heard a high-pitched voice. And the voice said, I can see you, and so can Jesus. <laughs> oh, no. And then a few moments later, the voice said again, I can see you, and so can Jesus. He reached into his pocket and pulled out his phone and hit the torch and shone it in the direction where the voice was coming, and there was a parrot. And the parrot staring at him, and he thought, ah, just a parrot, a clever one who's been taught this by his owners. And uh, then he, the parrot says again, I can see you, and so can Jesus. Bergen thinks, yeah, right, any more of that, and I'll wring your neck. And suddenly, here's a growling to the left. And he turns the phone, shines it, and there's a giant rottweiler. And the parrot says, go get him, Jesus. <laughs> I know, it's not very good, is it? In 
in this unusual message to the church in Thyatira, Jesus is saying he can see us. And actually, he's really rather angry with a thief that has crept into the church and who is stealing from her. Now, Thyatira was an ancient Greek city now in Turkey, and it was known for its manufacturing. So it was full of artisans, and they made three things in particular there, and we're going to come back to these. They made shoes, they made bronze, they specialized in burnished bronze, and they made textiles and dyed cloths. And it's actually the least prestigious of the seven cities and the churches in the seven cities that are being written to. It was, it, was, it was a very unimportant place. And yet it was important to the Lord. He's not just interested in the prestigious church or the glamorous church in the prestigious city and the glamorous, but he, he, he loves all his church and he loves the whole world. And he begins to speak to this church. It says in verse 18, if you've got your Bibles on your phones, do follow this. He says, these are the words of the Son of God. That's the, that's the first thing out of his mouth. That's the first thing they're going to hear. Now, in Thyatira, there was a temple that was devoted to Apollo. And some of you may know that Apollo was the son of Zeus. Zeus was the father of the gods, the god of the gods, and Apollo was his son. And there was a temple there to the son of God. And here comes Jesus. And the first thing out of his mouth is just putting things right. He's saying, well, in this place where you are, where they focus on the worship of Apollo, the son of God, I want to remind you, there's only one Son of God, and it is me. That's the first thing out of his mouth, and it's the most important thing. We've got to know who God is so we can know who we're going to worship. And it's part of the problem in this church, because their worship has been divided. And then he says that his eyes are like blazing fire. He's speaking about himself. This is a testimony. My eyes are like blazing fire. And then later on in verse 23, he says that he searches hearts and minds. In fact, uh, the Greek there says he searches hearts and kidneys. What he's saying is that he can see right to the very core of our being. And not only can he, but he is looking. He's got these blazing eyes, and he's searching to the very center of our being. He's interested. He's paying attention. He doesn't pass over us, but he's looking at us and seeing our every thought and our every action and our every emotion and our every impulse. He is the Son of God, and he's the one who is looking at us. His eyes are always towards us. He is always attentive to us. And then the description goes on. Uh, We've seen he's got these blazing fire eyes, and then it talks about feet of burnished bronze. And again, these are relevant to Thyatira, because as I said at the start, that it was the center of making, of forging bronze 
and of polishing it in a particular way. And they made special things for, uh, arm, for the Roman army. And uh, so they would have been familiar with fires. And Jesus picks up on an image. Many of them may have worked in that trade. And Jesus picks up on it. You walk around these streets. You're aware of the smoke going up and the hammering going on and the burnishing. Well, I have feet of burnished bronze and blazing fire. I said that they made shoes out of leather there. It was, a it was like Northampton. It's where they made shoes. They made shoes, but Jesus has got feet of burnished bronze. It's about stability and power and authority and glory. Jesus is giving an impression of himself so they will be impressed and they will respond properly. I think often we have a false image of Jesus. He's rather sort of there for when we have a problem and he can sort of say, there, there. Maybe a sort of Sunday school chocolate box picture of Jesus who's meek and mild and carrying the, the, the lambs on his shoulders. A friend of mine called Guy Chevreau, who was uh, one of the leaders of the Toronto movement years ago, he said that he didn't want uh, in children's or nurseries or Sunday schools pictures of Jesus carrying a little lamb. He said he wanted a picture of Christ the tiger. He said, because we've got this sort of rather slushy image of Jesus. T.S. Eliot wrote, in the juvescence of the year came Christ the tiger. Actually, it's not a biblical image, but Christ as the lion of Judah is. And you'll know that's how C.S. Lewis presents Jesus to us, as the lion king, as the lion who is the Lord. And you'll know that line where Lucy says, is it to Mr. Beaver? says, you know, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, safe? Of course he isn't safe. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. And he is the king. And that's who is addressing them. Whose words have authority. And who needs to be shown uh, due respect. Well, let me just say three things that... Uh, I saw this week when I was prepping. Firstly, Jesus sees what they're doing. We've seen that he's seeing. And he's emphasized his blazing eyes. And he's emphasized that he's searching right to the core of their kidneys. Jesus sees what they're doing. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Verse 23, I will repay each of you according to what you do. Verse 26, to the one who does my will, to the end I will reward, and so on. So Jesus is paying attention, and he's paying attention to what they are doing. And he's not looking to nitpick, but I think he's looking first and foremost to reward and to bless, and to call out, and to honor that which is good. Like all the seven letters, all bar one, he is correcting things, but before he gets to a correction, he commends, he blesses them. Decades and 
decades ago when I was an undergrad. And I, I, I've never forgotten. I remember getting back my first essay. And in those days, they, I don't know if they do it anymore, they marked them out 75. It was like a perfect number, 75. And I got 58. And I remember thinking, 58? What sort of a mark is that? I, I gave all you know, week to this essay. And um, I went and spoke to the tutor and said, 58? What's that? I said, where did I lose 17 marks? I've, I've lost 17 marks. Where did I lose them? And I remember the tutor saying, you haven't lost anything. You just haven't earned 17 marks. They said, we start with you pass at 40, and then we're looking for stuff to, to give marks to. And we've given you all these marks, only there were more we could have given you, but you hadn't written a very good essay. Anyway, I remember going back and thinking, oh, okay, and I'll just hammer some more stuff, and I did come back a bit better in the next round of essays. But Jesus is looking. He's not looking to deduct things. First and foremost, he's looking to award marks because he's looking through eyes of love at us. And he's wanting to affirm. He's wanting to call out the good. And he's wanting to bless. And he's wanting to honor. And he's wanting to reward because that's what he's like. He is a good God. I was going to say good father, but he's not a good father. He's a good Lord and Savior, and his father is a good father. And the church in Thyatira are doing a lot of good. And in fact, Jesus says they're doing more than they did at first. So it's kind of incremental, and they're moving forward. Four times he refers to the things that they do. And Jesus is looking at us for the good that we're doing. This is the first thing that we see. What is the good that we're doing? What are the good things that we're doing? What are the kingdom things that we are doing? Christianity isn't simply about our creeds. It's marked by our deeds. It's not just what we believe, but it's how we behave and how we act and live. Ours is a faith that must be lived out. Seeing is believing, or rather our believing should end up being seen. And there are so many aspects, as we all know, to the Christian life. There's right doctrine, and there's establishing community, and of course there's worship and prayer, but there must, and they all must be there, but so must our deeds, our doings. Four times in this little passage, Jesus underlines doing. And he's looking to see how we are doing. And he's looking to see what are we doing. And the doing being an evidence of our faith. Of course, we're, we're justified by faith. It's all from grace. And none of it is by works. That's, that's very clear. But at the same time, we are justified and saved for good works that God has prepared for us, Ephesians 2.10. He's prepared beautiful things for us to do. And have we found out what we should be doing? And are we doing what we should be doing? So that's the first thing. Jesus sees what they're doing. And some of what they're doing is pretty good. And uh, we read that there are deeds of love and faith 
love for one another, love for the Lord, faith in the Lord, that lead to serving the Lord and others and also persevering under pressure. How are you doing? He says, I know your deeds. And if he was to come to you today and say, I know your deeds, what are the deeds that he would know? That he's going to commend, that he wants to honor and bless. Listen, Jesus is not out to get us. He's out to bless us. First and foremost, he moves towards us in love to bless us. That's the first thing. But then secondly, and this is the toughie in this text, Jesus sees their undoing. Verse 20, nevertheless, when you read that, you can write in your Bible, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, something like that. Here we go. Nevertheless, he thought he's commended the good. However, I have this against you. You really don't want the Lord to be saying that to you, do you really? I've got something against you. But I do feel that he's not saying it growlingly. Growlingly. I don't think that's a, a, a verb but, or an adverb, but it's good though, isn't it? Growlingly. I'm sure it's from Bristol, where I'm from. He's not saying it growlingly. He does growl in a bit. But he's not growling at the church. He's going to growl at the person who's come in to ruin the church, the thief. But he, he's not saying it growl. He's saying it lovingly. He's saying, listen, I've got this against you. You have tolerated that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Wow. So despite the good that the Lord commends, not everything's good. And this is a church that's really a bit mixed up. They're rather messed up. On the one hand, there's faith, and there are deeds, and there's a love for the Lord, and there's perseverance. But on the other hand, there's some serious problems in this church. Now, the enemy is always attacking the church. He attacks the church because he hates Jesus, and the church is Jesus' bride. He attacks the church because he wants to render the church powerless and ineffective in advancing the kingdom of heaven. He attacks the church because he is full of hatred for her. And he attacks the church overtly in persecution, and a number of the churches in, in Revelation, they are facing severe direct affliction. But he also attacks the church covertly, and he does that through dilution. From the outside, through persecution, from the inside, by dilution. And people he sends as his envoys to the church under the guise of being, as it were, sheep, but really they're goats, or rather they're wolves, and they come to destroy. I can see you, and so can Jesus, and Jesus is growling here. Verse 20, the church has tolerated or accommodated, and it appears to be a woman, Uh, it could just be a symbol, but I think it is a, a literal woman, and Jesus calls her Jezebel, that may or may not be her name, but we know that she is a false prophet. In other words, she has a position of authority and she's speaking authoritatively into the church and what's coming out of her mouth is foul. 
It may not be, you know, blatantly obvious. It may be more subtle than that, which is why they, can they have fallen for it rather than immediately seeing the problem. But she is leading the church away from the faith. And she's leading the church astray into the world and into sin and into compromise. And she's called Jezebel. As I said, it might be a symbol. But many of you will know or you'll recognize that name. And Jezebel in the Old Testament was the wife of Ahab. And she made Ahab turn Israel away from Jehovah, from Yahweh, and the worship of him to the worship of the Baals and the Ashtaroths, which were the gods of fertility and associated with sexual immorality, prostitution at the temples and orgies and all of that kind of fertility stuff that would please the gods and bring about rain and, and prosperous crops and that. But she turned the people in the church, in, in, in Israel, away from God. And here's this Jezebel figure in the church turning the people away from worship of God. And there are those two things, and we see them throughout Scripture. Immorality and idolatry. Their worship is being diverted to other gods. And their bodies are, are not being pure but there is, in fact, the word that's used there is porn, you say. They're, they're being deviated into this sexual immorality. And both of them are, are associated, I think, with the, the cult, Apollo worship, but over all the different working guilds, if you like, or professions. They had their own idols, they had their own me uh, kind of meals, their own dedication to these idols, and often sexual immorality and orgies were part of that. That's what it was like back in them days. And the church are trying to hold the line and be pure and keep sex within the parameters that God has ordained. But instead it's all spilling out into intimacy here, there, and everywhere. False gods and immoral sex. We're not given the details, but we don't need it. We don't need pictures or out like that. We know what's going on. And the false prophet has come in and has basically said it's okay to lower the bar on faithfulness to Christ, to lower the bar on conformity to Christ, to lower the bar on taking up your cross and following Christ, and to just play with the world's toys and enter into the world's pleasures rather than holiness. So it's a kind of syncretism that is happening in this church. And many of the people are bought into it all too readily. So Jesus sees what is good. He sees what they're doing and commends it. But then he sees their undoing. That all the good that is being worked by him in them and by them in society is being undone. And they're just falling backwards. Because many of them are listening to this Jezebel and doing what she says. So they're kind of hokey-cokey Christians, you know, kind of one foot in, one foot out, in, out, you know? They kind of, or, or they've got one foot in both camps. They're in church on a Sunday, they're at the temple on a Monday, they're at Wednesday worship, and then they're at Thursday orgy, and they're managing. They're just, that's what's going on. And you, and you think, come on, come on, vicar, that's unbelievable. Listen, I've been a vicar 30 years. 
is very believable. I've had enough pastoral sessions with enough people to know you can have your hands up in the air on a Sunday. And on a Monday, you can be just like the world, playing around. And then there's an amazing phrase. Look at verse 21. It's, Jesus says, I have given her time to repent. You see that? I love that verse. Underline that in your Bible. Well, no, don't underline in your Bible. You probably have got phones. But that is a wonderful line. Why? Because it is grace before judgment. And even this false prophetess who is leading the church astray and leading the church into sin, Jesus is giving her time to get her act together. And he's not immediately coming to judge her. I've given her time to repent. And Jesus has been patient and gracious and long-suffering. And he immediately stepped in and sorted it out. He's given her time to repent. That suggests to me he's revealed her error to her. Maybe the false prophet had a real prophecy where the Lord came and said, you pack this in right away or something serious is coming. Grace before judgment. And isn't that just like the Lord? He always wants to show grace before judgment. Always. Always. Many years ago, I remember going to visit a friend of mine, I had a parcel for them, and I got to their door, rang the, you know, knocked on the door, and they weren't there. It was a, a, a female friend of mine, and I thought, oh, and immediately I had an open vision. I don't often have these, but I had this open vision. And in this vision, I saw her with another person I knew, a married man, in a particular place, and I knew things were wrong. I just began shaking. I Something's going down. And I got in my car and I drove to this particular little beauty spot. And there was her car. And I knew that they were together. And uh, later that day, I went and spoke to them separately. And, and they admitted that they were on the brink of an affair. And that this was a grace of God that had been revealed to them so that they could step back, just pull back from falling into the chaos. And for a while they did. And then a few months later, desire took over. And they began an affair. And it ruined, obviously, his marriage. He was a vicar. It ruined his ministry. It damaged hers. And grace before judgment. God had given them a grace. I could tell you story after story where I've seen similar things. And God had given grace first. And when grace was ignored, when grace was rejected, when grace was denied, when they refused to repent, the word repent sounds a bit religious. It just means change your mind, change your action, change your direction. It's about changing. I gave her the opportunity to change. She wasn't having any of it. And sadly, Jezebel rejects grace. She refused to turn. And then it says in verse 22, look at that. That's a, that's a strong verse. I will send her a bed of suffering. A bed of suffering. I think there's a kind of inference there. You've had your bed of adultery. 
You've had your bed of immorality. You've had your bed of playing around. But if you don't change, there's a bed of suffering. Jesus loves his church. And this is a false prophetess coming in and messing up the church. And he's given a chance. And there's still another chance for her. But if she doesn't repent of her witchcraft, there's going to be trouble. Well, that's the second point. He sees their undoing. That's a bit heavy. Last point, number three, and very short and snappy. Jesus sees their redoing. Verse 26. To the one who is victorious, the one who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations as I received authority from my Father, and I will give that person the morning star. And this is always God's end game. This is always his desire. He wants to bless us. And he wants to share his authority with us. And he wants to give us the morning star. There is a professional, a personal cost to following Jesus for these people in Thyatira. Maybe, maybe if they don't participate in, in the, 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 the shenanigans and the immorality and the idolatry of the guilds and the, the artisans, you know, they're, they're workers. They're part of these guilds. Over it, there was gods. They don't participate. Maybe they were out of a job. Maybe it was going to cost them something. But the cost that they would endure for being faithful to Jesus is nothing compared to the reward that they will receive for their faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus promises those of us who are faithful to him this amazing future. He says, two I will gives. I will give. He says, I'll give them authority over the nations. I mean, can you credit it? Who are they? These are just ordinary, humble artisans in a second-rate city in the Roman Empire in what is now Turkey. I mean, who are they? Ruling? They haven't ruled anything. They make shoes. They make fire. They're ruling? But Jesus says, listen, this is how it works. If you're faithful to me, I'm going to let you sit with me and rule with me forever. You will rule the nations. You've been pushed around for following me, but one day... You're going to rule. There is authority, dignity, and a beauty of that office sharing with Christ. And then he says, and I will give you the morning star. That is a communist newspaper, but he wasn't talking about that. I will give you the morning star. What is the morning star? Well, Venus. And it's the last star to disappear at dawn. It's the last one before it dis- and the light shines. And so it may be that he's saying, I'll give you life, that through the darkness, after death, I'll give you this shining light that welcomes the dawn of the new day and the new eternity. Some think it's about resurrection life. But twice in Scripture, Jesus says, it says of Jesus, it says in Peter and in Revelation, he's the morning star. He's the morning star. And I think what he's saying is, look, 
You've been promised all of this. You can play around here. You can, you know. I'll give you myself, the morning star. If you're faithful to me, you get all of me. In that great movie, Gladiator, which was on this week, and my beloved wife said, no, you've seen it enough, and we're not watching it again. In the movie Gladiator, General Maximus, in his speech just before a battle, says this, what we do in life echoes in eternity. What we do here echoes throughout forever. And that's what we see in this passage. Jesus is looking, he's coming, he's speaking to them because he cares for them and he wants to bless them. He sees what they're doing and he commends it. He sees their undoing and he gives them a chance to sort it out and pull away from giving their heart and their bodies where they shouldn't go. And then he sees their redoing, all that he can work in their life if they're faithful to him. Amen.